ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Today we examine the Laodicean legacy. The Laodicean legacy. Begin reading at verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This passage contains the last of seven letters the Lord Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This letter is harsher than any of the others. The Lord Jesus comes to this church with no words of blessing and no words of commendation. He examines this church and he sees nothing in it that is worthy of praise. Now before we look in these verses, I want to give you a little background on the city of Laodicea. The city was founded by Antiochus II sometime before 253 B.C. It was named after his wife, Laodice. One problem in Laodicea was the fact that there was no ready source of water in the city. The Lycus River was nearby, but the waters were too muddy to drink. Water had to be piped in through aqueducts. Water from the hot springs in Heropolis, which were six miles to the north, were brought into the city. 
Water was also piped in from Colossae, which was located 10 miles to the east. Now, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 61 AD. The city was so wealthy and so self-sufficient that they rebuilt their city with their own resources, refusing any offer of any aid from Caesar and the Roman government. Laodicea was famous for three distinct things. One, Laodicea was famous as a center of finance. The city was renowned throughout the Roman Empire for its wealth and its financial power. Thus, it was a center of banking and finance. Secondly, it was a famous place in the region as a center of fashion. Laodicea was renowned for the soft black wool that would be produced there for years. This wool was considered a luxury item and was sought after for clothing and rugs, thus making Laodicea the center of fashion in its day. The newest styles would have appeared here first. We would uh, consider it akin to present-day Paris, Milan, or New York in that regard. Third, Laodicea was famous as a center of medicine. Now, there was a large medical school in Laodicea which produced a tablet that was sold all over the Roman Empire. This tablet would be crushed, mixed with water to form a paste. And this paste was rubbed into the eyes and reported to cure a variety of eye problems. Thus, Laodicea made its mark, and it was a very important city. The church that existed here was important as well. It was very important to God. And this church was the human representation of the invisible God. How the church was perceived was how God would be perceived. That's why the spiritual condition of every local church is important to God. Now, the Lord's words to this church are particularly Relevant in our day. Churches like Laodicea dominate the landscape in our world as well. We need, we need to place our church alongside the church of Laodicea. We must compare our church to that church. And if there are any similarities, we need to deal with those areas. Bring them into line with God's word and his will. It's easy to see and understand and tell if a church has inherited a Laodicean mindset. First, we see in verses 14 through 17, this church had problems. Now, Jesus comes to this church without a single word of commendation. And as he considers them, he has nothing good to say at all. He simply comes to them and he lays out all the problems that he sees in Laodicea. Verse 14, we see there was a problem with control. Notice the words, the church of the Laodiceans. If you'll take a moment and look at each of the other letters in Revelation 2 and 3, you will see the words, the church of, or the church in. 
and then the name of the city. In the other cities, it was the Lord's church in that city. In Laodicea, the implication is given that it was their church, not the Lord's at all. It was their church, and they did as they pleased, not considering either the will or the word of the Lord. Now, we must never forget why the church exists. It is not a platform that exists to promote people. It is not a forum for us to advance our agendas or our ideas. It is not a place where we can run or dominate. His church is not our church. It is his church. Why? Jesus died for the church. He purchased it with his own blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. He builds it and sustains it, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. The church exists for his glory, and we are here for him and for him alone. Our duty is to preach him. Our duty is to praise him, promote him, publish him. Laodicea had eye trouble. In verse 17, theirs was a me-centered church. We must be aware of that mentality. This or no other church is your church. This or no other church is my church. It's his church. We need no other Lord but Christ. No one is qualified to take his place. And this church must be centered in him. And verse 15, there was a problem with passion. Remember that water problem I spoke of earlier? Water from the hot springs in Hierapolis, six miles away, was brought into the city by aqueducts. By the time it reached Laodicea, Water was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. Cold water from Colossae was also piped in. By the time it reached Laodicea, that water was lukewarm as well. Thus, the tepid, lukewarm water made getting refreshment in Laodicea almost impossible. Jesus tells them that like the water in their city, they have become lukewarm. This means they have lost their passion for Christ. They were indifferent. They were apathetic. They were going through the motions, but they were unmoved by the things of God. They were indifferent toward the things of God, the word of God, the cross of Christ, and the condition of lost people all around them absolutely no longer moved them at all. They were not burning with passion for Christ, but neither were they totally dead nor cold. They were somewhere in between. But the Lord makes it very clear that their condition was sickening to him. This is a crystal clear depiction of the modern church. Many in the church today are going through the motions. There's no passion for the things of the Lord. For the most part, church people are no longer moved by the cross the crucifixion, 
Oh, we hear about it, but we sit unmoved. We're unmoved by the plight of the lost. We're unmoved by thought of going to hell. We really just don't care. Oh, we might say that's terrible. I wish they would get saved, but we don't pray. We don't witness, thus we do not care. The average church in our day is a study in complacency and apathy. The church is not exactly dead because they pray, they preach, they sing. Yet the church is not on fire either. There's no passion. There's no excitement. There's no beating pulse for the one whom they serve, whom they belong to, what they hear or what they're doing. The modern church is somewhere in the middle of the road. And we enter the church, we take our seats, and we're finished. We lack a desire to pray. We come and we go. We're satisfied with one or two services a week, if we can make it. We're not moved by the need of the lost. We're not moved by the need of the church. We're certainly not moved by the will of God. We're just here. Barely, but we're just here. My friend, the church has been affected by the Laodicean legacy. It's a hard church to move toward the Lord. Now, Jesus was a man of passion. He was on fire, and it showed in his life and his ministry. When we're indifferent and unmoved and unconcerned, it gives a false impression of Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he stands for. There are some things about which you cannot be indifferent. Indifference and apathy are not options when it comes to Jesus Christ. No one who is right with God can pass Calvary and see the Lord Jesus bleeding and broken and dead and be unmoved. No one can hear the claims of Christ and be ambivalent. He claims to be God in the flesh. He claims to be the only Savior. He lays absolute claim to your life and mine. No one can walk in the middle of the road when it comes to Christ. You're either for him or you're against him. You either must accept him as your Lord or you must stone him as a fool. Verse 17, there was a problem with perception. The people lay to see and looked in themselves. They saw the perfect church. They were wealthy. They were powerful. No doubt they were influential in their own way. They said, we have everything. But they were indifferent. They were apathetic. They were unmoved. They believed they were in good shape. The problem is, their opinion didn't matter because their opinion was based on blindness. Jesus tells them that they were totally wrong about what they've seen and where they're at. I sure pray we never get to this place. The sad truth is that some get more excited about money in the bank than they do of what God's actually doing in the body of the church. They get more stirred up about a big number on a board than they do about worshiping Christ. They're more blessed by what they have than by what the Lord is actually doing in their lives. They're pleased with themselves because they've done a little when the Lord has done so much for them. Friends, far too long we have placed too much value on the things that pass away. Church, we need Jesus, and we need every particle of what he can do for us. I'd rather have him, his presence, his power, 
than anything material you can name. We need him. We must seek him. We must welcome him. We must worship him. We must honor him. We must follow him. We must obey him. A church is like an airplane. An airplane is about the only vehicle that doesn't have brakes. An airplane stops going forward, it starts going down. The same is true with the church. When a church stops moving forward, when a church loses its vision, when a church stops being passionate about Christ and what he can do for them, then they're headed for a rough landing. I'll say it again. We need him. Church not only had problems, but the Lord had a plan. Verses 14 through 19. See, the church is in trouble, but not all hope is lost. There is hope, and here's his plan. Verse 14, he proclaims his authority. There's a word of confirmation here. He comes as the amen. Amen is a Hebrew word that means so be it or let it be so, or it is so. It's expressed the ideas of faithfulness and truth. It means let it be so. It means it is so, or it's true. It's a word of confirmation, word of finality. When Jesus comes to this church, he comes as God's final word to humanity. He comes as a confirmer of all of God's promises Regardless of how the Laodiceans saw themselves, Jesus comes to tell them the truth, and he comes to have the final word. But he also gives them a word of confrontation. He comes as the faithful and true witness. This church had a vision of itself that was completely flawed. Jesus wants them to know what he sees, how they truly are. He wants them to see their true state. He comes with the word of domination. He's called the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this identifies Christ as the creator and controller of all things. Not a speck of dust can move in this universe without his permission. He comes to a church that thought it was running its own show, but Jesus comes to remind them that in spite of what they may think, his hand is still on the throttle, and he is the one who controls the church. It would do us well to remember who Jesus Christ is. He is still God's final word to the church. But also in verse 15, we see his desire for the church. The water situation in Laodicea is reflected in the church, and Jesus tells his church, that he wants them to be either cold or hot. He wants his church to be a people that can offer relaxation and healing as if it was a trip to the hot springs. He wants his church to be a place where people can be refreshed by worshiping Christ in his presence. But also in verse 16, we must note that because of their condition, the Lord tells them that he will spew them out of his mouth. The word spew is a strong word. It means to vomit, to throw up. 
the Greek word is emeo, and we get our English word emetic from it. And emetic is something that makes you want to vomit. Jesus tells his church that like a drink of lukewarm water, they make him literally want to throw up. He cannot and he will not tolerate indifference and apathy. Verse 17, he describes the church. He says, he says, they thought that they had it all. In verse 17, Jesus looks at them and says, you have absolutely nothing. They were proud of their achievements, and Jesus says, they are wretched, which means troubled. He says, they're miserable, which means to be pitied. They were proud of their wealth, but Jesus says they're actually poor. That word literally means destitute and reduced to begging. They were proud of their vision of themselves. But Jesus says that they're blind. They cannot see themselves as they really are. Someone said there's no one so blind as he who will not see. They were proud of their fashions and fine clothing. Yet Jesus says that they're naked. They're revealed for what they really are. I must say that when Jesus said this, this really hit home. To be naked in that society was completely uh, humiliating. It was the ultimate humiliation. They stand humiliated before him. Verses 17 and 18, he proclaims his will. Jesus tells them where they can find all they need. Come to Christ for spiritual wealth. If they come to him, put him first, live out the word of God, they will know true riches. And he calls them to get on the spiritual gold standard. Live out a genuine faith before a lost world. They might see their wealth disappear down here, but they will be laying up treasures over there. Secondly, come to Christ for spiritual garments. He invites them to come to him for spiritual garments. This is an invitation to come to him for salvation. They were naked. They were lost in their sins. And if they come to him, he will clothe them in robes of righteousness, and they will no longer be naked in the sight of God. Third, come to Christ for spiritual vision. He invites them to come to him so that he can restore their spiritual vision. When that spiritual vision is restored, they will be able to see themselves as they truly are. And they will be able to see him as he is. This will lead to repentance, obedience, and humble service. Verse 19, he proclaims his love. Jesus gives them a much-needed word of advice. He says, as many as I love, in spite of all their indifference toward him, he still loved them. What a blessing. Jesus doesn't write people off when they don't do what he pleases. But he calls them and he continues to love them even when they reject him and his love. Then he says, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus tells him his people that just because he loves them like they are, he loves them too much to leave them as they are. 
He uses two methods here to turn them to him. One, he says, he uses rebuke. That word means to convict or correct. He speaks to us about our spiritual condition. He sends his word and he convicts us in our hearts, John 16, verses 7 7 through 11. And if we come to him, he receives us. If we fail to heed his rebukes, he will use more direct methods. The word chasten means to correct with blows. He may touch any area in our lives to get our attention. According to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, he might even use death. He then says, be zealous and repent. The word zealous comes to us from zesty. It means to come to a boil. Jesus is calling this church to get on fire for him. When they see their need and turn to him, it will manifest itself in genuine repentance. Thirdly, notice with me they have his promises in verses 20 and 21. Our Lord closes this letter with some of the most wonderful promises he could ever give them. He gives them this, I stand at the door and knock. In his effort to get back into this church, Jesus stands there and knocks. These verbs are in the present tense. He never gives up in his efforts to enter the lives of those he loves. So we have a present promise. Again, we have a personal promise. Verse 20 says, if any man hear my voice and open the door, Jesus does not need for the entire church to get on fire so that he can come in. He merely needs just one person to hear him and to open the door. By the way, this is not a verse calling lost people to come to the Lord. This verse is calling the church to open the door to allow him back inside. This verse is not about regeneration. This verse is about repentance. Again, in verse 20, we see a precious promise. Sup with him and he with me. The ancient Greeks enjoyed three meals. They usually ate a large breakfast, a much smaller lunch, and then a leisurely evening meal, which they called supper. At that evening meal, the family would take their time, talk in fellowship. It was a time of intimacy for the family. Jesus said, if you'll just open the door, I'll come in and fellowship with you. Now again, notice in verse 21, we have a powerful promise. This verse is a promise that all the benefits of salvation will be given to the person who overcomes. The converted person will become identified with Christ, his heavenly father and his heavenly home. And those who come to Christ are promised that they will reign with him and rejoice with him in his heaven someday. My friend, that's a powerful promise. When Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea, he is speaking to a church of lost people. He invites them to open the door of their hearts to let him in so that they can be saved. And the offer still stands. If you come to him, he will save you and he will cleanse you and he will set you apart for his glory and for his use. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.